Can you answer the question? No, it is a trick question. Why is it a trick question? Watch this. Welcome to Between the Lines, a podcast about sports and the law with your host, me, Gabe Feldman, director of the Tulane Sports Law Program and co-founder of the Tulane Center for Sport. On this episode, I'm joined by Jeffrey Kessler, co-chair of the sports law practice at Winston and Strawn, and perhaps the most well-known sports lawyer in the world. Jeffrey has represented every major players association in the country, litigated some of the most significant sports antitrust cases in history, and is currently representing the plaintiffs in the Alston v. NCAA case that is headed to the Supreme Court. He also represents the women's national soccer team players in their equal pay act lawsuit and has represented the NFL union on behalf of Tom Brady, Ray Rice, Ezekiel Elliott, the players involved in the Bounty Gate non-scandal, and has also represented Oscar Pistorius, Castor Semenya, and countless other athletes and players associations. On this episode, we talk about the upcoming battle in the Supreme Court over college athlete compensation limits, the U.S. women's soccer players fight for equal pay, how he is partly responsible for the misery of Jets fans, and how bumping into Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in the unlikeliest of places changed his career. And much, much more. Here we go. You did it! The case cracker! Welcome, Jeffrey Kessler. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Gabe. All right. We have big news came out last week from the Supreme Court where they granted cert for the Alston case involving the NCAA and compensation for college athletes. And I want to start with probably the the most important question, at least in my mind, and something that you can answer and you've talked about in the past. But what, in your mind, is the correct way to pronounce certiorari? (laughs) The easiest way to deal with that is say that cert has been granted. That's what I usually do, but... I, I need to know. What, what, I mean, I've heard you say it, I think, different ways, different times. I may have, but uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll just go with cert as granted. Okay. All right. So they granted the petition for cert. I, I think at this point, there's a general acceptance that the NCAA restrictions on compensation for college athletes limit their pay, limit their mobility and other benefits, uh, much like the reserve clause and other restrictions did in pro sports decades ago. But the counter by the NCAA, both generally and then specifically for purposes of the Alston case and antitrust law, I guess, in general, is that allowing payments untethered to education would destroy college sports and the amateurism model and the distinction between college and pro sports, destroy Olympic sports. And I think there are many college administrators and college sports fans who share that fear. Can you explain from your perspective and the plaintiff's perspective why that fear is either unfounded or unpersuasive from an antitrust perspective? There is a fact issue and there is a legal issue, right? The Supreme Court is apparently going to do with the legal issue, which I'll put aside for the moment, and I'll talk about the fact issue. As a matter of fact, the judge found after a 10-day trial that there was no support for the NCA's position that the restrictions which she struck down had anything to do with fan interest, promotion of the sports, revenues, or even what they call their collegiate model. That, that in fact, it's all basically a pretext. (laughs) And what these restrictions are designed to do is to not pay for labor. (laughs) And as any members of a cartel would not want to pay for labor. So, for example, the judge struck down restrictions that stop students from getting free computers to use in class, education-related. Restrictions that stop them from getting their study abroad paid for, like the other students can get it. Restrictions that stop them from getting internships relevant to their majors to do work. Restrictions that stop them from getting graduate school scholarships, which other people could get in terms of this. Restrictions which stop them 
from getting the same type of awards for academic progress that you could get for athletics. So right now, if you get to the bowl games, okay, or you win the NCAA tournament, you could get like a $750 gift card for Best Buy, right? But if you want to give someone an award for graduating, you can't get that. And what the court did, as a matter of fact, and said the restriction she struck down had nothing to do with this amateurism model or anything there, and were just restricting what these students could get. So those are the facts. Now, she did find she did find that there is some justification for distinguishing between being a professional and being a student athlete in the college model. But what she found on that is the most important requirement was that you be a student, which we don't object to. Like no one is suggesting that schools should hire people who are not students to just play on their teams. That's not anyone's view. So she said, but if they are students, And if they get these graduate scholarships or these other things, which are going to promote their education, what's the harm in that, (laughs) right? Particularly since the students are generating billions of dollars in revenues and you have a coach, let's say it's Nick Saban. I have nothing against Nick Saban, but he makes like $10 million a year, okay? 10 times or 20 times what the president of Alabama makes, by the way. And if Nick Saban, if, as a result of competition, only made $8 million a year and $2 million could be provided in benefits to his football team players who generate for Alabama over $150, $180 million in revenue that's coming out, how could that be a bad thing? So that's the factual issue. Right. Now, those presumably are not even the issues before the Supreme Court. Right. The, the issue before the Supreme Court is the legal issue, which they're claiming that because of the special nature of the NCAA, they should have a presumption that their restrictions on students are lawful instead of being subject to the same antitrust, what we call rule of reason, that applies to all other businesses. That, that's going to be the legal issue before the Supreme Court. And you've argued that this case shouldn't go to the Supreme Court, but you note that the decisions below in the Alston case is modest in many respects, and given, as you just talked about, that they only apply to education-related benefits, so this wouldn't open the door for for pay-for-play. Given that the complaint and the requested relief was broader than was granted by the district court and then also by the Ninth Circuit, why didn't the plaintiffs file ask for cert to try to get the broader relief? Well, we're dealing with another class of football and basketball players every year. And what we really wanted to do is start getting those benefits flowing to those class members because their time in school is short and and trying to reassess the, um, at this point before the Supreme Court, the broader relief we had requested, the best you probably can end up there is a remand to go all the way back to the district court and, you know, have additional proceedings and hearings. You know, meanwhile, this other very, very important relief we obtained would just pass through another generation of students every year. So our our judgment as to what was best for the class right now was to try to get finality. And that's why we oppose cert. Right. right. Now that we're here before the Supreme Court, we'll see what the Supreme Court does. The issue is now before them. Right. So I'm back to the legal issue. Uh, As you've argued, not only in in the cert petition, but in the district court and Ninth Circuit, that the antitrust laws should apply to the NCAA like they do to other groups of competitors. And you push back on the characterization of a joint venture. 
saying that at least in the labor market, they are more traditional competitors than they are joint venturers. But to summarize for people listening who, who don't have the antitrust expertise that you do, what's the argument that the NCAA is wrong, that antitrust law should apply differently, given that almost every court has said, look, sports are different, college sports are different, they do need some cooperation to exist. At a minimum, it's not per se illegal, and maybe they are entitled to some type of deference or presumption, even if not an irrebuttable presumption of legality. Okay, so... Courts have said that sports are entitled to the rule of reason. We don't quibble with that, right? You know, we, we advocated for and won under the rule of reason. What the NCAA is arguing for is not the rules that apply, for example, to the NFL or the NBA or the NHL in their labor market restrictions, which are the rule of reason exactly what they got and exactly what they lost under. They want to be elevated in antitrust protection beyond all other sports. And no case has ever held that in the labor markets that somehow they should get this. They argue they, that this comes from dicta in a Supreme Court case called Board of Regents which had to do with their television restrictions, which were held to be antitrust violations under the rule of reason. And even though they lost that case, they go, well, there was language in that opinion which indicated that the protection of amateurism is special. And so since that's our special role, we should have extra protection against the antitrust law so that they would love to have complete immunity from the antitrust laws, but if we can't get complete immunity, please give us a rule that says basically we have complete immunity, that you should defer to whatever we decide so that there's this presumption that whatever we do is lawful in this area. And we just think that's wrong because while they're actually, the the NCAA is entitled, in my view, to less antitrust deference than the NFL or the NBA or the NHL. Now, why is that? The NBA and the NHL, they're actually joint ventures in the output market. You know, they're a league. The league runs itself, has a specific league product, and at least as they're competing outwardly, they're a joint venture. Despite that fact, in the labor market, They're viewed as competitors, and they're subject to the rule of reason. The NCAA is not even a league. It's not a joint venture in that self. Each of the conferences run themselves as their own league. The closest thing they have is the NCAA tournament. But that's not a league. That's just an event. That's no different from a tennis promoter running an event and inviting all the athletes to participate. So they invite the teams to participate in their events. That's not the leagues. The leagues in basketball are run individually by the conferences. And one of the things we argued in our case, which the court accepted, is that conferences can compete with each other. So the SEC may have different rules. In fact, they should have different rules than the Ivy League, even though they're both technically leagues that send teams to the NCAA tournament. They are not the same competitive animal. But you allow the individual leagues, the conferences to set that, there's really no justification for the NCAA to be the one, because all the NCAA is doing is restricting the SEC which generates billions of dollars from you know spending their money on players because the Patriot League doesn't generate virtually any money from their sports and they're not in the same business, right? You know, again, our case was focused on the FBS football, right? It wasn't focused on even general division one football. That's where all the money is. And that's really where the exploitation of the athletes takes place. So if the NCAA 
and the schools eliminated the conferences and they, they got rid of the group of five and the autonomy five and the NCAA oversaw and governed all of it, that would strengthen, you think, their argument? That would make them... Look- if they had a league and ran that as a business, they would have to be totally restructured as a completely different model. But that would only get them to the rule of reason in the labor market. What I'm really saying is that their rule of reason, there's more reason to apply stricter scrutiny to them because they really are in the labor market, a group of competing leagues with each other, in addition to schools who don't even market. They compete against each other for sponsorships. They compete against each other for television, that we know from the NCAA case, right? They compete against each other, and yet they're bringing all these competitors together to have this horizontal restriction. If the NCAA is right, let's just accept for the sake of argument, that allowing compensation unrelated to education would hurt the popularity of FBS football and Division One basketball. Would your argument still be that it, that doesn't matter if it hurts the popularity because we're talking about harm in the labor market and the NCAA is talking about benefits or harms in the product market or that the benefits to the product market are outweighed by the harms to the athletes? So that's an interesting question. Okay, we won before the district court who did that weighing from one market to the other, and we still won. Right. And as the court found that even though there was some pro-competitive justification to, to have a differentiation from pro sports, it could not justify these restrictions, right? So we won on that basis. We're happy to win on that basis. There is another plausible legal argument which the dissent, the, not the dissent, the concurring opinion in our case in the Ninth Circuit said, you know what? You should win for another reason. You should win because the, the offsetting pro-competitive effects they're arguing are in some other market, not the labor market, and shouldn't even be considered in the labor market. Well, yes, we can win on that ground as well. That's a ground I don't know if the Supreme Court will be willing to entertain or not because it wasn't really ruled on by either the district court or the court of appeals, but the Supremes could do what the Supremes want to do. So maybe they'll go into that area as well. Right. And and do you think that's the right outcome? And we've seen, as you know, in the last few years, this rise in labor cases in antitrust law, where, where it, it for many years, they were sort of non-existent and and in fact, the courts would say labor is not really the focus of antitrust law. And now we're seeing these non-tampering, these, these uh, not covenant not to compete, no poaching agreements, uh, broad against labor restraints and held to sometimes be per se illegal, be criminal violations. What impact do you think that will have on the NCAA litigation? Again, as you said, whether it's this case or cases that come after this, this renewed focus. So I, I think this is going to be a live issue somewhere. Again, we'll see how it plays out in our case. Yeah. Uh, but it's a very valid argument. It's also interesting because, in fact, the antitrust laws were involved with labor markets for many, many years. The Clayton Act right. had to create a labor market exemption for unions because the antitrust laws from their outset were applied against union activity, saying it's restraining competition in the labor markets. They were given an exemption just for unions, right? That doesn't apply to employers in the labor market working without any unionization or anything there. So this this really is not, it's new that the government's enforcing in the labor market, but it's actually a very old idea of antitrust and it applies to labor markets. And I'm just thinking the, as you know, well, the, the court of appeals in the Brady case back in 2010 or 11, that antitrust law in general is not intended to apply to labor. And it's the argument my predecessor, Gary Roberts used to make that looking at the language of the, of the antitrust laws that, um, Labor is not a not a commodity for purposes of antitrust law, which I've always argued is taken out of context and doesn't apply the way he thinks it applies. But that seemed to get some traction. And to me, it's remarkable, given the, the state of the country and the administration, that now is the time that there's been this renewed focus by the government 
on these labor market cases? I think labor markets have always been part from the beginning. But if you want to go to what the f- people understood the antitrust laws meant, they were yeah. clearly understood to apply. And if Gary Roberts was correct that it wasn't covered to begin with, then you'd have to conclude that Section 6 of the Clayton Act is superfluous. And so um, and I don't think you know, I don't think any I, this Supreme Court will not interpret a statute as having a totally superfluous section in the Clayton Act. So I think labor applies, except to the extent that the labor exemption takes you out. And the labor exemption very clearly doesn't apply to the NCAA. However, right. however, you're going to interpret this. So on, on that note. You and, and Jim Quinn and others were the architects of the, the dissolving a union with a disclaiming interest or, or decertifying the union to get access to antitrust law for workers and under the a bunch of different case law at the time that, that essentially said you either have to choose antitrust law or labor law. You, you can't do both yes. at the same time. And so in an effort to end the union, the NFL players back in the 90s dissolved their union and again did in 2010. From the college athlete perspective, would you counsel them to continue down the antitrust path to try to increase their rights? Or if they had the opportunity, which they don't right now under the law, but if they had the opportunity to try to form a union and collectively bargain for their rights? Well, you know, I I think... It would be an important decision to analyze if you could unionize the major college sports. The problem is that you can't unionize state schools if the state has a law that prohibits state employees from being unionized, and that negates your ability to unionize most of the power conference members because many of them are in states where you can't do that in the Big Ten, for example, what the Northwestern University case basically said is that the only member of the Big Ten at the time who could be unionized was Northwestern. And since you need a solution that applies across the conference, at least, it, because you can't have different rules for every single conference member, it's not really a practical option right now. But to do that, if the law of a change, if Congress passed a statute and said from now on, all universities, state or federal, they could do that, by the way, if they wanted to preempt state law, are now subject to unionization, then I think it'd be something you'd have to seriously look at as to which rule, which road was going to get better benefits for the college athletes. And I haven't really ever assessed it in that context yeah. because it's never been a viable option, you know, in, in terms Although of Although I suppose that. it would still be, if, if the Northwestern case had come out differently, their players, if they had voted in favor of it, might not have cared about the rest of the Big Ten. They might have just said, we want to get better working conditions. No, but you see, you'd still need antitrust. In other words, the reason is you could do things like at the margin. You can improve their health care. You can improve their treatment on campus and how many hours they have to work out each week or things like that. But if you wanted to change their ability to be compensated or receive benefits, what Northwestern would say, well, if I agree to that, I'm going to be thrown out of the NCAA and be thrown out of the rest of the conference and I'll have nobody to play. So you'd still be back to antitrust as being the only tool that could get you there, right? That's why I said you have to at least be able to do a conference and you can have a conference break away from the NCAA if they had to. But if you only want school, the conference won't let you play if you're giving compensation to your athletes and no one else is allowed to do it in the rest of the conference. That's the problem. Well, and we, we may see that issue obviously in a, in a different context with Florida's NIL law, if it goes into effect before whether there's any federal. Right. So the brilliance of the NIL laws is that uh, the first two are California and Florida. Right. And the conferences, the major conferences, need school. The Pac-12 needs the California schools. They, they can't right. throw them out, right? The SEC needs the Florida schools. They can't throw them out. The ACC does too. 
it's really those states have the ability and they have done that to put the NCAA in the position where unless the NCAA gets federal legislation, they have to change their rules to try to hope that this is going to accommodate those, those changes, because otherwise they're going to fall apart as a, well, as, a, as a body. Right. Well, they change the rules or they sue and try to enjoin Florida's law from taking effect, saying it's unconstitutional, which. Yeah, but the, but uh, it, it's I'm not sure they can win the unconstitutional fight. And, and the reason is they already have allowed all their conferences to have different rules yep. in their history. So once you cross that Rubicon and you can say that the Ivy League competes in basketball and has no sports scholarships allowed and the SEC could do what they can do and yet they play together, it's very hard to make a constitutional argument. You need one uniform rule for the country when you don't have one. Yeah, they would argue that there can be exceptions to the uniformity and the language they've used before just because you don't have the most distilled to the purest form of amateurism. Carry that argument over and say... Broad, more broadly speaking, they need the ability to have a national set of rules and not have states interfere. But we'll see. You're right. I mean, there's a lot that could still happen between now and then, including going back to your earlier point. It may be that one of these federal laws or at least bills will give college athletes employee status. I, I think that's a possible outcome, which would then give the scenario where, where the athletes do maybe have an option to unionize on a broader level with their conference wider. Yeah, a lot, no one knows what's going to come out right. of Congress. So especially at this moment. As a general uh, matter. So, yes. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, ha- we'll have to see. Yeah. The Jenkins case, the, the case that was filed on behalf of Martin Jenkins, who yes. very talented football player for Clemson. I have to ask you a question because I, I've talked about this case many, many times. Many people have talked about this case many times. And for at least a long time, it was known as the Kessler case, as you probably know. Not, not the, by me, but I've heard well, some of course, people call it that. Yes. But others, yes. others refer to it as the Kessler case. Yeah. I am not aware of any other case that was known by the lawyer and not the party bringing the case. Can you think of any? Where, um, I, I couldn't think of a single I, one. Yeah, again, I, I'm not I sure. I don't embarrass you. I don't, I'm, I'm not, not sure who started that. Maybe it was you. But um, <laughs> there, there were some people referred to it that way. And, and, yeah. and I think the fact that we ended up with the case being tried is the, is the Alston litigation, right. uh, you know, sort of goes to the point that just happened to be the case that we brought at the time. And it was always a Jenkins in my mind. So no. Yeah. No, I, I, I was not suggesting that you were calling it the yeah. case. That would have been something that probably would have been the first time in history. A lawyer had called it by his own name. Yes. I probably <laughs> last couple of points on the NCAA cases. Are you going to argue the case in front of the Supreme court? We will figure that out. It will, it will be Steve Berman or me. We're both co-lead counsel on the case, and uh, we'll have to figure that out. Okay. And then I, I know the argument was made for the cert petition, and it was briefed in the Ninth Circuit, but the legislative activity, both at the state and federal level, do you think that will have any impact on the decision? So I, I think it should for two reasons. Okay. One is there's what I will call a kind of reverse Kurt Flood aspect to this, which is that it's been pretty clear that the NCA has been subject to the rule of reason for now 36 years since Board of Regents. Right. Congress had many opportunities if they wanted to give them some type of favored position. They haven't done so. They're still looking at it. It would strike me that this is not a case where the Supreme Court should decide that it's going to create an exemption after having subjected them to the rule of reason for the last 36 years. So I think it's relevant in that sense. I think the NIL legislation is relevant because the premise of their amateurism argument is that there has been some fixed line in the sand that if you went over this line, that you were going to break the facade of amateurism and that the man was going to fall. And that since now the NCA itself has decided that allowing athletes to be compensated for their names, images, and likenesses is perfectly fine. When Justin O'Bannon 
They had argued that any such compensation would be the end of the NCAA and, and the popularity of college sports as we know it, I think goes to sort of, frankly, the credibility of their whole position. So you're unmoved by their argument that they're in a catch-22, that if they continue the current restrictions, they get sued, but if they make their restrictions more permissive, they get sued? No, every business is yeah. faces scrutiny under the rule of reason. That's all they're describing. They have no more reason to complain for that than any other company or set of competitors in the United States. It's the, it's the argument I used to make around the American Needle time that the best way to avoid getting sued under antitrust law is to stop violating antitrust law. But the defendants didn't like that argument that I made. Right. Switching gears, women's soccer. Yes. And the lawsuit that was brought claiming that the women were entitled to equal pay and the treatment they were getting violated a variety of laws, including the Equal Pay Act. Part of that case settled recently. Can you talk about just the, the part that has settled and, the, and sure. then we can talk about the part that... Yeah, is- so there were two pieces to the case. Frankly, the more prominent and in some ways the more important part of the case is about equal pay, equal compensation. The second part of the case was about equal working conditions. And it's not that that's unimportant. As every employee knows, your working conditions are important. Uh, But it was the second part of the case. It related to things like travel, hotel accommodations, the turf that they play on, the support personnel that they had with them on trips was not equal to what the men were provided. That part of the case has been resolved. They've agreed to provide equality. We have we both agreed to new policies that we believe puts us, the women, at least equal to the men. And there's a guarantee that if the men get better, we get the right to upgrade to that. We've achieved equality working conditions. On pay, as you know, and I'm sure others know, we lost that on a summary judgment motion. We think that is wrong. And one of the things we'll now be able to do is appeal that to the Ninth Circuit. The outstanding nature of the working conditions issues has prevented us from appealing the pay issue because of the procedural rules that apply. That will now be cleared away, and we can turn our attentions to appealing the pay issue, where we expect to have that decision overturned. And to talk about the the pay issue, and also, frankly, the working condition issue, I don't think many people know that there are unions representing the women's national team and the men's national team, and that they're separate unions. Can you talk a little bit about how that and the collective bargaining negotiations impact an equal pay act claim when the men have bargained for one set of terms and conditions of employment right. and women have argued for another and they're they're different right they're different yeah. they're based on different structures right. different bonuses and how that in, in, interplays with an equal pay act claim so this happens not so much as a result of collective bargaining which it has here this happens in title 7 and equal pay cases all the time where an employee gets not just a single salary, but gets a combination of salaries and benefits and other items. And the claim is that, you know, take your pick, that white workers are getting a better package than black workers, or men are getting better than women, or uh, able-bodied are getting better than disabled, or whatever the form of discrimination is, you have to look at the package. It happens in this case, the packages are the results of collective bargaining, but that doesn't really make any difference because the legal analysis should be the same. And the same is you look at it on a net basis. So I'll give you an example of that. The women got pregnancy leave. Okay, The men did not go for paternity leave. They just didn't bargain for it. So when we do our equal pay analysis, okay, when a woman was on maternity leave and got paid, that was like a deduction in favor of the men right. in our analysis. 
And what we did is we add all those differences up. And at the end of the day, the men got millions more <laughs> under their agreement than if the women had performed the same as the men, right? Where we lost the case on summary judgment, and we just think is dead wrong, is that it erased the performance criteria. So basically what it found is the women got to the World Cup and won the World Cup. The men didn't qualify for the World Cup. So the women got that are making up this number, let's say $800,000 for winning the World Cup, right? And the men got zero because they didn't go (laughs) to the World Cup competition. So the court says, oh, how could you argue it's not equal pay? The women actually got more than the men when you argue this thing. And we said, but if the women had the men's agreement, they wouldn't have gotten $800,000. They would have gotten $4 million, right? So it's a, it's a totally performance-based analysis. And, and again, the analogy I think works is think of in salespeople. If you had men making a 20% commission on sales and you had women making a 5% commission on sales, if the women outperformed the men in sales by more than four times, they'd actually make more money. But how could that not be discriminatory? You have to look at what would they each have made under the same criteria, and that's what the discrimination has been here, because the discrimination is based on bonus structure for winning and bonus structure for getting to different tournaments. So because the women have been so much superior in their performance, the court said, oh, when we look it all up over the four years, the women actually make slightly more than the men in total because their performance is so superior. So therefore, we don't have pay discrimination. We just think that's dead wrong. So what about the the court's argument that if the men had been paid under the women's agreement, the men would have been paid more than they had been paid, and that it was a trade-off that the women had made between guarantees versus sort of upside, and and the difference where, where more of the men have contracts and leagues that pay them more money, and so they were willing to sacrifice guarantees for higher bonuses, which they didn't get because, as you said, they didn't qualify for the World Cup, whereas the women didn't have as many other outside opportunities, so wanted higher guarantees with lower bonuses. The court's argument, when they do win, they don't make as much money, but if they both lose, the women would make more than the men. So that's actually factually wrong. Uh, if If the men performed like the women, had the same performance and the same criteria, they would make millions of dollars less under the women's agreement. Taking into account injury protection, taking into account paternity leave, those differences, they would make millions less. All that is is the reverse of the analysis that we put in. The only way you get different outcomes is if you take the men's performance differences and say, well, under the women's agreement, since the men almost never earned the bonus, mm-hmm. they would do better under the women's agreement if you were a, what's called a contracted player, which was only 18 of the women on the team, you would get at least a guaranteed salary of $100,000. So if you win no games and tie no games and lose all your games, you do better that way. But if you if you stabilize performance, the women do vastly worse under their deal and the men do vastly better under their day, deal. No matter what performance you lose, the longest it's the same for both teams. You just said the district court got that analysis wrong. That's, yes. Well, yeah. they, they, the district court accepted a certain 
conclusion, but it made no sense in the context of discrimination as to what discrimination should be, in our view, at least. If you're successful on appeal and you win the Equal Pay Act claim, what does that mean that in terms of future collective bargaining negotiations, I think at least early on, the, the collective bargaining issue was used to sort of muddy the analysis a little bit. It's like any other employer outside of collective bargaining, right? You hire people all the time. It just means that you can't have an employment structure which would pay your women less than your men for the same performance. Within that confines, you can negotiate anything at any time. Again, if you take it out of collective bargaining. If, If you're a faculty member in a college, okay, and you're a a male member, a female member, says you have to provide equal compensation for your women faculty members as your male faculty members under the same conditions, right? That's such a, there's always going to be different conditions. Someone can be tenured, someone can be non-tenured. And it doesn't matter who comes in in what order and negotiates their salary or what packages, that requirement still applies in the end. And the, and the USSF still tries to use it to muddy uh, the analysis because they make it say, well, the women chose to be discriminated against, right. right? Because they accepted the CBA. That's no more of a choice than any woman has where where the employer says, this is your salary. Will you take it to work with, for me? And she says, yes. Right. That doesn't mean she's choosing to be discriminated against. Can you talk a little bit about the broader implications that you see the case having? I mean, it's obviously hugely important for the for the women, for the players, for arguably our most successful national team ever, but what it means even beyond soccer. So I think it's important for our national dialogue. You know, I, I think it can inspire people to move in favor of equal pay and equal compensation, which we all need to do, and inclusiveness of women and promotion and hiring. I think it has a inspirational basis that goes far beyond its legal significance. I also think, by the way, that it'll have some legal significance for cases like I'm talking about involving people who get paid under bonus structures or or percentage compensation. You don't want a precedent out there where employees can now say to defeat a, a discrimination case where people get paid on a percentage of sales that as long as your total compensation is greater and this concept that you just could total the comp and 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 if the discriminated against party outperforms the favorite party that somehow eliminates the discrimination that's a precedent nobody should want right and sort of on that note the impact that some of your cases may have beyond sports two of the I think more interesting cases you've worked on uh, or clients you've represented are Oscar Pistorius and, and Castro Semenya. And it, it, just in terms of the disability rights piece of it and then the, the gender inclusion and their DSD or, or transgender, they're obviously very different issues. But can you talk just first about your take on sort of the, the bigger picture impact that those cases could have, and then I just have a quick question just on the on those specific cases. With respect to disability, I had hoped and had thought that the, what the Pistorius decision was going to do, which we won unanimously, and then after Oscar got to perform in the London Olympics in such a glorious way, it was going to break down the idea that the disabled shouldn't be able to fully compete against the able-bodied, and that would have a larger benefit the disabled community generally in terms of their self-pride, their ability to achieve, and what they can inspire. Until I realized how intransigent world athletics is, so I'm having the same fight again now for another double amputee, Blake Leaper. Right. Uh, and, and in the Leaper case, is very interesting. So what happened is after we went Pistorius, that was the rule. They then changed their rules in 2000. I think uh, 14 or 15, to say that, well, on the Pistorius, our rules said that we had the burden of proving the disabled athlete would be advantaged to compete with his prosthesis. 
Uh, we're going to change that. We'll make it that the disabled athlete has the burden of showing he has no disadvantage, which, of course, is very, very hard to prove a negative, very expensive to prove a negative. Right. So we challenge that for Blake Leeper, who otherwise would be qualified to compete in Tokyo. It would have been this year originally. Now it'll be next year. We took that to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, and we won on that issue. Okay, The panel unanimously ruled it is discriminatory to put the burden of proof on the disabled athlete, and so the rule can't apply. You would think we had won for Blake Leeper. No, no, no. They said, wait, but we have now another reason Blake Leeper shouldn't compete. And they said the reason is the Paralympics has adopted a rule called the MASH rules, which is designed to make a uniform way of measuring what the height of your artificial leg should be to the proportion of the rest of your body. And they said, Blake Leeper runs too tall under those rules, and so he can't compete for that reason, which is a reason, by the way, World Athletics didn't even make up until we got to the cast hearing. What do we find out since then? We found out that this mass rule of the Paralympics only is based primarily on data involving Caucasian athletes from Spain, okay, as supplemented by a study done of Japanese athletes in Australia. Don't ask me why they're Japanese in Australia, but that's what was done for this. No black athletes. Blake Leeper is black, okay? It is well known in the literature, or the biological literature, that the African race in general has longer leg proportions than does Caucasian or the Asian race. It's just the way it is. So, you know, we all are in some ways the same, but we also have some differences, right? Not a single black athlete was in this. So Blake said, how could this be? I'm now going to have to run body proportions that have nothing to do with people of my race and ancestry. So we're challenging that in, in the Swiss Supreme Court. We hope that will get struck down. If not, we'll have to figure out something else. Uh, but we're going to have to go after that issue as well. So the fight continues. The issue of intersex is a more profound issue in some other ways, which is that and unfortunately, I did not represent Caster Semenya in the most recent fight. I represented her a number of years ago when she first started competing, and we never had to go to Cast. They settled with Caster and let her compete. Then they came up with a new set of rules years later, much like what they did with Oscar stories to the disabled. Here we go again. Well, we couldn't keep her out under those rules. Let's come up with some other set of rules. And they came up with a new set of rules that basically would have said that Castor had to take medications to suppress her hormone levels and undergo medical procedures in order to compete. And she was not willing to do that. Uh, and she had other counsel bought this and unfortunately ended up losing this case. And the problem I have with this is that if you're born a certain way, that is not a competitive advantage, okay? Michael Phelps has certain physical attributes that have made him the most decorated Olympic swimmer in history. No one goes to Michael and says, hey, can you take some medication to alter your physiology so you won't have this advantage? No one says that to Usain Bolt, who must have like the quickest, you know, you know, ligament, you know, the what do they call that? The twitchers or whatever. Yes. Yeah. You, know, you know, he's born with that. So Castor Semenya is born on this spectrum of sexuality, and it's all spectrum. Okay, because it's like, you know, there are averages, but averages are just a reflection of the spectrum, right? And so she has a different hormonal level 
than the average female competitor. But to the extent that's a quote advantage, it's a natural advantage of who she is to go in and tell her, well, you can't compete with women. What sense does that make? I think it's wrong. I think it is disrespectful of her. You know, she was born and has lived her life as a woman. You know, this is this is a totally different issue of people who undergo, you know, sex change uh, surgery. That's like another issue. But Cassie just was born with this mix of you know of things in her body, and she should be able to compete as a woman, which she has always been. So. I just think it's just dead wrong is what happened to her. The, the broader analysis that I, that I see here is that whether it's transgender or DSD or it's a, a disability, that it's the leagues or the sports organization making the same argument that they really make in almost every area of law, which is that area of law should not apply to us because we're different. And if right. you apply that area to us, it's going to destroy competition, whether it's allowing yeah. someone with a disability to compete or someone who's transgender or intersex, whatever it might be, right. we have to be separate from the law. And what I really resent, it's almost like they treat it like it's uh, performance-enhancing drugs, right? right? The, the, you know, Blake Leaper did not ask to not have legs. Right. Casta Semenya did not ask or do anything to seek to be born the way she is. To treat this as this is like a performance enhancer that is somehow it, it's just wrong. It's morally wrong to put it in that category with kind of the guilt and the, the, almost the cheating idea that this is insinuating about that. Right. And then potentially further stigmatizes those with, with disabilities. Correct. That's correct. And last couple of quick points. The argument that something might destroy a sport or might destroy a league it's proven to be unfounded in almost every case where the leagues make that argument. There's one case where it's not brought by a league that you were involved in that I have to say has impacted me more personally than any other case. And that is when you represented Bill Belichick in 2000. And as a lifelong Jets fan, I, I don't know that anything has changed the course of a franchise more than the Bill Belichick saga. Can you just briefly just talk about how that case came to be and what the negotiation ended up. So, so let me tell you a story about that first, which is that, so the year before I did Belichick, I think it was the year before I represented the union and Curtis Martin Mm -hmm. and Curtis Martin moved from the Patriots to the jets. And there was a challenge to whether he had the right to do so on the free agency. And we got him over there. And when that happened, I got all these mail communications. Uh, I don't know if it was pre-email, but I got communications from Patriots fans <laughs> who told me that I was a New Yorker. I lived in New York. I obviously must be a Jets fan. And I had manipulated the system in order to favor the Jets. When we got the Belichick, those same <laughs> Patriot fans were now my best friends. And I got a, a host of communications from Jet fans who said, how could you possibly have done this to help manipulate the system so that Bill Belichick could go from the Jets to the How Patriots? could you, Jeff? How could I you did, do that to did, us? Did, did, did. So uh, the legal story there is, is really you know, quite interesting. Bill resigned as the head coach of the Jets because essentially Parcells had refused to honor a commitment he had made to Belichick. Is that he had told Belichick, You're going to be my successor. And when you take this job, I am not going to be in the organization hanging over you so that you're going to have the pressure that. Three games into the season, they're going to bring me back in terms of that or anything like that. That's not what happened. Bill Parcell said, I'm stepping down as head coach, and I'm going to be president of football operations at the Jets. Belichick was very uncomfortable with that, and he decided that it was a kind of betrayal of what he had been told. And so he resigned in that famous note 
I resigned as HC of the of the Jets on a little piece of paper that he wrote. At that point, the Jets said, "Well, okay, you can't go anywhere else." And the question we had: Well, are you going to pay him for his services? Is it why will we pay him for his services if he's not going to be our head coach? I said, "Well, because you can't." have it both ways. Either you're going to honor the contract and say, we'll just pay him to sit out for a year or you got to let him go, right? Because otherwise he can't survive economically. He's got to have a job. So this went, we filed an antitrust case against it. And there also was an arbitration by the league over this issue. And then it got settled, basically. What happened is that the Patriots agreed to provide, I think, draft choice compens- compensation to the Jets, agreed to drop their claim, and the rest is history. Uh, and- yeah, and history, yeah, not the kindest history for us Jets fans. Last point, and then I'll let you go. And just in 30 seconds, I-, I love to hear people or read about people's origin stories, what made them into the person or professional they are. And I, I love your origin stories of how you became interested in antitrust law after taking an elective in your first year of law school, and you said it wasn't even your first choice. But can you just briefly describe how you sort of accidentally almost fell into sports law practice when you were at Weill? So I'm going to say it was an accident, but it was fate. So the way I accidentally got in is I went to Wild Archel Manji's having nothing to do with sports. I didn't know they had anything to do with sports. I'm was interested in being an antitrust lawyer, and that's why I went there. They had at the time one of the premier antitrust practices in the country. And they were just settling the Oscar Robertson antitrust case for the NBA Players Association. And actually, the summer I was there as an intern, while I was still in law school, I ran into players in the restroom. And it became, that's when I first became aware that there were this sports antitrust case going on. And it settled just before I got there. And as a result, when I started as a young first year antitrust lawyer, the NBA Plays Association needed some antitrust advice and stuff and and run by a, a wonderful guy at the time named Larry Fleischer. And I got assigned as like this first year lawyer to do this stuff. And like the rest was kind of like history, as I say. But the reason I say it's fate is that one of the reasons I first got interested in being a lawyer was because in the 1960s, I became aware of sort of the power of legal issues and kind of the importance of rights in sports because of Muhammad Ali and his case that went to the Supreme Court because of the Olympic protests that took place because of the various legal issues that were sort of surfacing when I was kind of like a young teenager uh, about this. But never did I actually, even though that inspired me to sort of see the power of legal issues to change lives and do important things. and, And I was very wrapped up into what was going on in the 60s in terms of social movements and things. I never actually thought that, when I then became a lawyer, I would have anything to do with athletes' rights and sports. And then, as they say, the rest is history. So I think it's faded in some way in terms of that. And now there's nobody more influential in, in fighting for athletes' rights. Through, through well, that, that I would debate you with. I actually, think, I actually think the people who have been most influential have been people like Gene Upshaw, Dean Smith, D. Smith, Marvin Miller, the... The athletes that stepped forward are Kurt Flood or Freeman McNeil, uh, Michelle Roberts today. Pe- people like that, th- those those tended to my view be the most influential and important. But uh, do I very much enjoy being a lawyer? Yeah, I like yeah. that role. But You're- I think they're the ones who really are the leaders of the fights for athletes' rights, at least in my es- estimation. That's fair. The person on this call who is the most influential is you. Is that fair out of the two of us? And, and well, I'm going to end. I'm going to end this call with the final thing. Okay. okay. So, Wait, was it Kareem you know, though? The, was it Kareem the, in the bathroom? I thought it was. Uh, yeah, Kareem was in the bathroom. Okay. A very tall man in the bathroom. <laughs> okay. So the uh, 
the final thing I would say is yeah. there was once a sports business journal or some organization that had like the most influential people in the NFL. And that particular year was the year when Gene Upshaw had passed away. There wasn't yet a new union leader. I was very involved in the NFL. I was very involved in the NBA. And whatever reason, I was listed as the fourth most influential person in, in the NFL that year. And the, the answer I gave, he said, that's amazing. And the reason that's amazing is because at the time, I was also the fourth most influential person in my family. And that would come after my wife and my two kids. And now I'm even way down on the line because now I've got four grandchildren uh, on, on top of that who take precedence. So, you know, influence is in the eye of the beholder. There you go. That's a perfect way to end. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. I appreciate your time. Be well. Happy New Year. Happy holidays. Thank you. Same to you. Be safe. A better year is coming for all of us. Take care. And thank you all for listening. And special thanks to my longtime sponsor, RitVest. Weekends were made for RitVest. And thanks also to Jay Crowder, the Three Amigos, and the Tulane Center for Sport. See you next time. Between the Lines. Were these magic grits? 